I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness. For those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you, the fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. episode, I talk with Sarah Casada about her journey through immigration with her undocumented husband, her recent front lines experience at the Border Processing Center in Texas, and ways that those of us who may feel on the outskirts of this issue can make a difference. Join me in this interview with Sarah Casada. Well, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing really well. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I am so excited to talk with you this morning and um, just introduce you to my listeners. Um, This is a new podcast, Fierce and Lovely, and so I can't wait to get your thoughts on those two words, and we'll get into that in a second. But I wanted to start off um, just by hearing a little bit about who you are and letting you introduce yourself to all of us. How would you describe kind of who you are and what you're up to these days? Sure. Well, my name is Sarah Casada, and I um, what I tell people that I'm a writer, um, mostly because my best friend makes me introduce myself that way, <laughs> and um, because that's such a nebulous term. Um, but I do. Um, I have a business where I write for uh, different nonprofits, and my kind of mission and hope with my life and work is to be able to use words to make the world a better place, and so. Mm. I love being able to support good work in the world and help them tell their story. Um, I also wrote a book that came out this year um, about our family's journey through the immigration system, as well as how our story fits into the bigger picture. And so um, all of those ways for me are really important and really fun ways to be able to use words to try to, to tell a better story and to be part of good things happening in the world. Oh, I love that. I love that that's your focus, you know, in what you're producing on a daily basis. That feels really um, full of vision and full of direction, <laughs> which I think sometimes we as writers struggle with, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Sarah, what does that look like for you writing for other nonprofits? Are you kind of creating some of their um, just in house material or newsletters? What is, what is that all about? Absolutely. So I do all of the above. So I will help people um, with their internal communications. I do a lot of social media management. Um, My favorite thing to do is ghostwriting. I'm sort of a rare breed of extroverted writer. And so I love to just sit down with people and be like, tell me everything you're thinking and learning and seeing. And then I'll help you um, put that down on paper so you can share it with others. Oh, wow. That sounds fun. Sounds a little (laughs) jerky. Journalistic slash memoirist. Um, that's exactly. cool. Well, I 
I really want to talk about the book that that came out this year. I believe on the same day mine did, right? January sixteenth. Yes. Did we share a launch day? We sure did. Um, yeah. The fun and day. So yes, crazy day, isn't it? Um, but love undocumented, and I. I just I want to talk about that and your world, your involvement in immigration. Um, it's something that I feel very much on the periphery of, but am so 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 interested in. And I'm sure so many listeners want to know what can you know normal people who might live outside of of an area where it feels like it's daily in our face, what can we do and how can we make a difference and get involved? So lots of questions there, but can you just maybe start with telling us a little bit about your story and about um, your, I imagine your relationship with your now husband began a journey for you that (laughs) you weren't necessarily looking to take. So can you just take us back there and tell us a little bit more? Sure. So I resonate so much with what you said about feeling on the periphery. In fact, um, I had just finished graduate school and I was interviewing for a job in Los Angeles. And one of the questions that they asked me was around the fact that I would be working with immigrant families. And so they wanted to know a little bit kind of about my experience. And I just remember giving the most sad interview answer of kind of like, well, um, I think we should be nice to people. I think we should be welcoming. I think people should follow the law. I don't really know what the laws are, but you know, I kind of just gave this really nebulous um, answer. And miraculously, they still gave me the job, um, which was an amazing opportunity because um, I got to get to know and work alongside um, immigrant families from all different countries. And... Um, part of what we were doing actually was almost like a study abroad program where students from an upper middle class university were living with these immigrant families for a semester. Um, And so I was really engaged in that and just kind of connecting on a more personal level, but still didn't have much concept of kind of the broader quote unquote issues, if you will, around immigration. Um, And then I met a boy and he was so cute and funny and just (laughs) delightful (laughs) And uh, we started talking and then it was about on our third date that he was trying to tell me, but I knew so little about immigration, literally, that I didn't even understand what he was trying to tell me. Um, And finally, it was almost like he had to like (laughs) grab me by the shoulders and be like, I don't have papers. Like I came here on a visa. I overstayed. um, And now... I don't have proper documentation for living and working here in the country. And this was like our third date. So, you know, I'm just like, hmm, interesting. Um, I'm not really going to say much about that. And, and literally my thought was, I hope if this relationship gets serious, that he takes care of that. Because I was very much under this impression that we have reasonable and logical immigration laws. And that if you have done something like overstay a visa, you need to maybe take a half day off work, go to maybe an embassy, I don't know, and, uh, you know, take care of that. And to me, I very much saw it the same as like, at that season in my life, I was moving a lot. And, you know, my dad would always be like, have you updated your driver's license? You have 30 days from the time you (laughs) move to update your driver's license. And I thought this was somewhat similar. It's a paperwork kind of situation. Um, And it wasn't until maybe a month or so later that my now husband 
kind of had to sit me down and say, you need to understand there is no way for me to fix this except to marry a U.S. citizen. And then while I'm still absorbing that information, he's like, but if that's why you think I'm dating you, then we should just go ahead and break up. I really don't want you to feel any pressure. And I feel so he was so upset that that was that that dynamic was in our relationship. I didn't even know it. But for him, it was very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, so he tried to break up with me and I was like, what is happening right now? And so mm-hmm. for me, how honorable, Sarah, I mean, <laughs> he sounds like an honorable man that he didn't want there to be any mm-hmm. confusion, any assumption that he had ulterior motives. Oh, it was deeply important to him. And he was really struggling. He was like, other people might say this to you. And I just don't want you to hear this from anybody else. And I want to be upfront with you. But I was so clueless. A lot of that was really meaningless to me, even though now I look back and I feel as you do of recognizing like he was really trying to be upfront and do the right thing um, Mm -hmm. in this really complicated situation. Wow. So you, you ignored him or you said, (laughs) you're not breaking up with me. (laughs) Not allowed. I refuse that. Um, Yeah. I, you know, I kind of was like, let's, you know, take a step back. And I said, who knows, like maybe, maybe there's a stone we haven't overturned, you know, because for me, this was brand new information. And I didn't know at that time how much he had already been trying to work this out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from then, we just really went on a journey together. Um, You know, for me, it was a deeply spiritual time of praying and asking God. And I just, I felt Um, I'm a very indecisive person and it was probably the most confident I'd ever felt about putting one foot in front of the other. And I can only believe that that was God leading us together in that direction. Um, but it, for me, it was just a constant eye-opening experience, um, watching, you know, things like employers refusing to pay him and his coworkers, um, and them having essentially no recourse, down to, you know, meeting with lawyers and being kind of told what our path would be. And that kept changing. And there was just a lot of uncertainty. And for me, it was like entering into a whole new world. um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Did you feel more allied with him during that time than even, you know, your American citizen peers? Like you just were in it with him? You know, I do think there was... um, you know, there was a connection that formed out of that challenge that we were facing together. Um, for me, I think there was also, there was a lot of loneliness. Um, I'm used to kind of telling people anything and everything that they ask. Um, and there was this sense of needing to be prudent about who we shared certain information with that was really um, unfamiliar to me. And as well, I think for me, there was a lot of Um, maybe anger is the right word of just like, I just kept remember thinking like, if people knew, like, they would not be saying some of the things they're saying, or they would think differently about this issue. Because for me, it really was like, I hadn't known. And so when I found out, I was shocked. And I really, um, growing up as an evangelical Christian, um, to me, it felt very connected to my faith that we would care about this issue. And I was kind of surprised that I hadn't really known much about it up until th- this relationship. So you thought you were caring about this issue, but come to realize that there's so much more about it that you didn't even know. How, so how do we care about something that we know so little about? <laughs> right. And so I'm sure you guys, you ended up getting married, obviously. We did. And 
figuring a lot of stuff out and yet you're still that opened up for you um involvement in immigration reform can i say that immigration reform and and i'm sure just cast you into this whole new world of seeing this issue differently and seeing people who are embroiled in it very differently right absolutely so what has that looked like for you how many years have you been married now we have almost been married 11 years um, now. Okay. And so for many years, we were still walking through this process. Um, so my husband became a citizen about five years ago. So many of those early years of our marriage, I mean, when we got married, he was still undocumented. And so kind of walking through all of that, um, it was very, uh, I guess, just focused on kind of the center of our life and just trying to get things handled. Um mm-hmm. And then we moved to Atlanta and uh, did some different things. And I think for me, you know, it was interesting once we kind of moved through that, I, it was sort of out of my mind a little bit, but I started blogging and in kind of one of those, like, how did you meet your husband? <laughs> things that sort of escalated into like telling a lot of this story. And I was amazed at even how many people who knew us in real life had been even a, connected to us at that time, hadn't known all of the things that were going on. And some of that was because it's so private. Um, and then I would get emails from people saying, we're in your same situation. You're the first person I've told that, Hmm. you know, my boyfriend and I are going through this. And, um, it really just, again, reiterated to me how much mystery and, um, the unknown sort of shrouds around immigration. And, you know, one of the things I always joke is like the book immigration made easy, (laughs) is over 600 pages long. <laughs> so it just kind of gives you this is that a government book. <laughs> I think so. it's like kind of like SAT prep um, oh my gosh. Book resource. And, you know, when you're, you know, I very much came from this perspective of, I have no problem with immigration. People should just follow the law. And I just had no idea till I was in it, how convoluted and patchwork the law is and how many people are slipping through um, and really, in my husband's case in particular, he um, there really wasn't a way for him to legally immigrate. And so that just because he just didn't fit in these certain categories. And, you know, it just mm-hmm. I don't think he nor I really realized that at the time. Um, but one of the things that was very difficult for us in our engagement was that my husband's parents, who live in Guatemala still, um, applied for visas to come to the wedding and they were denied. Mm. And so we applied again and then they were denied again. And there's no real clear, they met all of the listed criteria. And so, you know, the response kind of when they were denied was like, better luck next time. And, but you're paying for each of these (laughs) cycles. And so we could only do it twice for two people. Um, And so my in-laws were not able to attend our wedding and that was extremely Mm. painful. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I was witnessing people who were trying to do it the quote unquote right way. And it was very eye opening that that's just not, it's just not that simple. Mm -hmm. I think the gift that you were given is that you walked through the nitty gritty of this with, with a person Mm -hmm. that you cared deeply for. And I think maybe that's one of the hard things about so many of us feeling on the periphery is that we don't have a person. And so we're looking at these policies, we're looking at it as an issue, we're looking at people in bulk, and it 
it changes everything, doesn't it? it? I mean, our perspective is so different when we are able to put a real person um, in, in front of us who's facing all of these things. So I think that, I mean, what a gift that you walked through so much of that firsthand and started writing about it and, you know, others needing your voice. And so it, they kind of brought you out of silence, it sounds like, some of your readers wanting you to speak more about it, right? It sounds like that was part of the journey. I think it was just a reminder to me of where I had been um, because once I got so immersed in it, I forgot that there were times I hadn't known <laughs> what I knew having walked through it. Um, mm-hmm. And so being able to write about it and speak about it has given me this kind of opportunity to connect with people. I genuinely believe that most people of faith want to be welcoming on this issue. They just, um, they have legitimate concerns about national security. They have concerns about their own safety and, and the narrative that we hear really preys on that. And so it's easier just to kind of back away slowly (laughs) than to really Mm -hmm. know how to engage in that. And, um, Mm -hmm. I, right. Yeah. I think I, I just, I really believe Maybe I'm naive, but I really believe people are are welcoming and are open to welcoming new people. There's just a lot of confusion and um, and sort of a different narrative around that that sort of muddies the waters. Mm. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about the trip that you were just able to take down to the border. And again, just help personalize this um, for those of us who aren't seeing things up close and personal. Can you can you tell us a few stories even? Sure. So um, I just got back from um, the border in South Texas, um, mm-hmm. and we um, were able to visit actually the um, Border Patrol Processing Center, which um, back in May when the zero tolerance policy, which you may have heard of because there was a lot of mm-hmm. uproar um, when fam- parents were being separated from their children um, right. This was the facility where that was happening. Um, and so sort of ground zero for that. Okay. Um, I think for me, you know, I had seen pictures on the news of kind of the wire metal cages and, um, kids with sort of those aluminum foil looking blankets. And I assumed that was like a crisis response. Um, and being there last week, walking into those exact spaces and seeing that that, is exactly what's still happening. Realizing that standard operating procedure to um, hold people in that way was really difficult. Um, now, thankfully, there's been a pause on the immediate separation of parents and children, um, which I think, again, was just really grateful to see kind of as people responded to that, this is not the kind of country we want to be, <laughs> being able to mm-hmm. walk back on some of those policies. Though there are still several hundred kids who are separated from their parents and have not been reunited. So there's groups that are trying to work to, to reunite them and make sure that everyone's where they need to be. Um, but mm-hmm. walking into those places and we also went into um, ICE detention. And so I think for me, a couple of things really stood out. It, you know, immigration has really changed since even I was involved, like walking through the system 10, 11 years ago. Um, because it's really started in 2014, excuse me, this surge of youth and children and parents with children. And that is a whole different type of process. And, you know, we're still sort of reacting to it 
essentially the easiest way for me to describe it is we're experiencing a humanitarian crisis and we're responding to it through a national security lens. Um, yes. And, yeah. and so, you know, you meet with border patrol agents who are saying, I got into this work because I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to um, be a part of stopping drug trafficking and different things like that. And then they're leading you into a room where they are housing. When we were there, it was almost 650 um, teenagers and children and infants with their parents. Um, and, you know, they're doing the job they were trained for, but they weren't trained for this particular job. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think recognizing the desperation and the, the things that families are going through in their home countries that lead them to make these really difficult choices, um, I think is mm -hmm. really hard. And I've seen people say, you know, well, their parents have put them in this dangerous situation and that's kind of on them. Um, and it was very hard. We sat with a mother in detention who said, I feel like a bad mom. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Um, my children have suffered in these ways. And, you know, and I think the mother heart in me goes out into the mother heart in her and that we're always trying to do what's best for our kids. And mm -hmm. she's in some extraordinary circumstances that I can't even imagine um, in fearing for her children's life and health and safety. And so she's making these really difficult decisions. Um, and yeah, just recognizing that that pain and also that mm -hmm. she's trying to do the best thing for her kids and keep them safe. Right, right. And now to live in this place of, of maybe regret or serious questioning, you know, was that the best decision? I just, on top of everything else, I can't imagine holding that emotion as well. Absolutely. Mm. How, so how are they holding up? I mean, what was the, what was the general, was there a general kind of atmosphere among those families and, and moms? Was there a sense of hope or dis, or was it despair um, or somewhere in between? Yeah, we were not able to visit with families in the processing center, though we saw some of them that um, after they had been given kind of like the ankle monitor bracelets and a court date, um, it's it's very expensive to hold people in jail. And so when they're able to sometimes go and stay with a family member until their court date. Um, and we spoke with some of those families and, you know, I would say there's an overarching, sometimes it's confusion, not realizing I, one person was saying, I'd never heard of ice until I arrived in the U S um, mm. you know, and I think there's this perception that, that sometimes these families are very strategic and are trying to avoid and, you know, what's happening right now is that so many people are coming across the border, flagging down Border Patrol and saying, I'm here to claim asylum, which is an international right. So technically, mm -hmm. they haven't broken any laws. Um, and so then the way that they are then put into these holding cells and then sometimes transferred to detention, it, it is somewhat confusing, I think, for some families. Um, mm hmm. Well, Sarah, that's confusing for me too. I don't understand how we how we're making that shift if if asylum is an international right that we're not affording these people, what are we doing? Yes, that's a really great question. It's really hard. Okay. <laughs> it it is. It's what's difficult when you see some of what's happening is that um entering the country whether through a port of entry or not and claiming asylum is an international right. 
and crossing into the country in between a legal port of entry is a misdemeanor. Um, And so the punishments for these perceived crimes are in extreme. Um, And and especially when you consider things like separating people from their children, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's never happened to me when I've been speeding. Um, And so Mm -hmm. these are, which is also a misdemeanor, also, you're saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, so I think it's, it is really difficult to see, like, we're not pr- equipped to respond to this situation. Um, it's still using some of the methodologies that maybe were effective in the past when you didn't have this surge of asylum seekers and families mm-hmm. coming across the border. Right. So we just haven't caught up with this new trend at all. And we don't have we don't have nearly enough. It sounds like we don't have nearly enough social workers and well, sociologists helping figure it out. Yes, and that came up in our trip because you know one of the concerns people have is well, what if people are bringing kids that aren't theirs and they're being trafficked and and so mm-hmm. the the uh, they do go through a screening for that, but it's being administered by law enforcement rather than social workers who would maybe be better mm-hmm. trained to catch that kind of thing. Um, exactly. And would just mm-hmm. be an effective presence in that place. So I know that's one thing that some advocates are really pushing for is trying to see more social workers in that space. Um, again, I'll just say that the cost of detaining immigrants is incredibly high. I think currently we spend about $5 million a day detaining immigrants as a country and um, much cheaper options, particularly case management, has been shown to be significantly more effective in getting people where they need to be and getting their cases through so that they know whether they can stay or whether they're Mm -hmm. going to be deported. So there's other options. It's just, Mm -hmm. there's sort of a lack of creativity and a lack of movement um, in Congress to make anything actually, you you don't see me waving my arms right now, but I'm trying to push things forward um, so that we can be better neighbors and to be able to welcome some of these these varying vulnerable families. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, I've, Two questions come to mind. I mean, the first is, and this is related to why I wanted to have you on the podcast, because we're talking about this this both and as women of being fierce and lovely. And I, I'm just curious how you're able to em- embrace that in this particular cause that you care so much about. I mean, I would imagine there would be a natural tendency like you are coming against injustice, which I believe we're called to do. And that's the way that we are fierce and we come alongside God to fight what is not right. Um, But so often that fierceness tips into anger, cynicism, unjust, unrighteous anger, cynicism, um, a chip on our shoulder, you know, kind of attitude. And so how do we maintain this other side that I believe we reflect God in and in that of being lovely um, in bringing forth life and beauty into the world and into those spaces that are unjust. So long-winded question for you, but how have you been able to maintain that? I'm sure at times you've not. I mean, I'm sure it's been a struggle for you, but what are your thoughts regarding those two words in light of this particular cause for you? Well, I love those two words. I think it's a beautiful um, just description of kind of who we are as women and Um, And I feel like I never saw that more than this summer, you know, as someone who's kind of been writing and talking about immigration for a decade. And then it was when I started separating children at the border, you saw this fierceness 
of mamas across the country saying, this is unacceptable. Mm, yes. And I was just like cheering. I didn't even, I don't think I even said much during that time because I didn't need to. Everybody else was saying it. And um, I was so grateful to kind of see that rise of um, this we will not accept. And I think then for me, it becomes, again, telling what's still going on because there's other unacceptable things happening. And so, you know, we need that kind of fierceness um, when we talk about immigration sometimes because people are in places where they can't always advocate for themselves. Um, but for me, the the loveliness side, the protecting your heart side is really important as well. Um, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I remember like talking to God a while back about expressing my concerns about writing about immigration in a broader way. <laughs> I didn't really want to do that. And, um, mm. you know, when I felt like, why? I felt like all I could tell God was like, well, people might bully me on the internet. <laughs> and it felt really small in comparison to what people are suffering if we don't speak up. And so I'm always mm-hmm. wanting to kind of walk that tension. And for me, a lot of that loveliness comes out of relationships. When when immigration or any kind of quote unquote issue is only an issue to us, then it becomes about mm-hmm. being right. It becomes about getting your message across or about um, winning, I guess. And so, but for me, being able to stay connected in relationship to immigrants has helped me to keep both that fire to do the fierceness, but also the reality that there's birthday parties and there are um, things happening in our day-to-day lives that we can be together in that keeps it from being just an issue that's out there to um, kind of bang the drum. That's one piece of it, but there's another piece of it that's very relational for me. I love that. It's that aspect of proximity that we're hearing so much about these days and the importance of, I guess, like what I said earlier, of people. Like when you're actually in in connection with people, it, it changes our perspective 100%. on everything. Yeah, I love that. Well, Sarah, what can we do? What can people like me who live um, in areas where I just am not confronting some of this or I'm not seeing it? And so maybe the question is, how do we look differently? How how might we change our lens um, in our own communities? And then just what are some things that we can do practically if we care about this? Sure. I would say um – Kind of a first step, I think, would be a prayer for God to open our eyes to immigrants around us. Um, it's, you know, there are folks in our own communities that are walking through these systems. And and because it is kind of like I said earlier, it's sort of a quiet or private process. Um, you don't always know who in your community may be walking through that and could use just some support Um and a good friend and they may or may not choose to share about their situation and that's their prerogative. But um, I think sometimes just us being opening our eyes to who's around us and how we can love our neighbor. Well, is a really practical, tangible thing. I would also say on a broader scale, um, helping to change the narrative, educating ourselves on what's going on of the stories that are happening at the border and in our communities and being able to, um, speak up for people when conversations turn a certain direction and being able to help um, tell a bigger story about who is who is entering our country and what why and and how we can support them and as well as I always encourage like immigration is a uniquely 
political issue where some of the things that are broken in our system can only be solved by Congress. And so there's, you know, there's a need for people to continue to make those calls and to, to speak into some of that because some of it will never be able to be fully addressed if people can't um, navigate those laws. So those, those are kind of my three, just, you know, tiny things, <laughs> but right. Right. Just tiny. <laughs> and so, but I do, I mean, and I, um, I put together a list on my website of like 15 ways to support immigrants because there's so many different ways to be able to connect in. And so um, I can send that to you and that's available as well um, at sarahcasada.com slash what do we do? <laughs> because that is a question okay, that I'm asked great. a lot. And so I want to support people in that. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And I will make sure that all of the links to sign up for your amazing newsletter, which truly Sarah is my favorite one I oh, get. Thank you. <laughs> um, yes, I love how how I just love how you do it, as well as just information on your book, Love Undocumented, and all the places to find you. I'll make sure everyone can see that in the show notes. All the links will be there. And Sarah, thank you so much for sharing with us today and being such an incredible example of being a fierce and lovely woman um, in lots of ways that we didn't even get to touch on, but particularly around immigration reform. So thanks for joining me on the show today. Hey, listeners. You know, as I was listening to Sarah, a recent experience came to mind. It's so insignificant compared to what she and her husband encountered or what she saw at the border recently, but it still gives me pause and allows me to connect in a small way to what some of these immigrants must be facing. Last month, my family and I went to Turkey. We've lived there before. We've been there multiple times. We've never had an issue. And we went back for a vacation to see it one last time as a family of five before our son went to college. Well, we were there for a few weeks, and on our way home, we were flagged in Germany and pulled to another part of the airport for some heavy-duty screening and security checks. It was my son and husband and I. The girls weren't flagged. But when we landed in Chicago and tried to connect um, to our next flight, the same thing happened. And then that flight was canceled. And so the next morning, back at the airport, the same thing happened. And we finally started asking TSA, what is the deal? And they said, oh, you have this code on your boarding pass, SSSS. And it means that you are on a list. You're either on a watch list or you know someone who is. And so we thought, well, maybe it's just this one trip because we just came out of Turkey. And so a few weeks later, I took another trip and the same thing happened. I have the same code on my boarding passes. And I've been told now that I have to go through Homeland Security to get this cleared. And so I went and started the process and filled out an extensive application and was told that it might take up to 50 days uh, for my the first part of my petition to even be seen and potentially cleared. And so here is somewhat of a bureaucratic nightmare. And I speak English, I'm an American citizen, and I did nothing wrong. I was just on vacation in a country um, where perhaps I know someone who knows someone. I don't even know what's going on, but it, it gives me a better sense of what dealing with our government and our systems and um, all of the confusion that Sarah alluded to that immigrants and refugees must face. So anyways, I learned so much from Sarah, and you can learn even more. You can follow her um, through her newsletter roadmap, uh, check out her book, Love Undocumented, and I'll give links to all of those places in the show notes. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe and consider leaving a review so that others can more readily find the show. 
All the links to connect with me will also be in the show notes. I'm Beth Bruno, and thanks for listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.